0: All right, let's get this show on the road. Let's say a word of prayer. Lord God, you have given us all good things, especially the gift of your Son. Grant that as we study your word, we might learn to draw ever closer to him in faith and in deeds and in our trust in the promises that you give us, especially the promise of eternal life. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, before we do, well, here's how we're going to do things. Do you have any questions? Okay. The, it's, I so, you know, Pastor Nelson is an overachiever and always has a handout for you and I. Um, this I don't want to give you a copy of my notes because they're handwritten and look like that, um, but I do want to feel better about myself, so I made you some copies. <laughs> Of, in, of things to talk about. This first, Pull up this one. This is a book. Um, this just, it just happened to be... Uh, ha- I happened upon it yesterday. I just started reading this book. It's page four. I think I'm on page five in reading it. Um, but it was this really interesting thing. This pertains to last week's discussion. So I'm going to read this paragraph for you, and then um, we can talk about it a little bit. So the, the premise of the book at this point is... The fellow is making an argument that um, we should uh, we, can, we should consider ourselves in an age of distraction and that we should consider our attention. We should understand that our attention is a commodity it 's been commodified um, and that nonetheless it 's ours to choose to do with as we please, even though um, especially in advertising um, Politics. I'll try to co-opt our attention, and uh, he gives this example. So he says, so he, he's making a, a case for regaining our attention, right? Applying it to what we want to apply it to. So, so for instance, some of the examples he gives are: you go into the airport, and um, you are putting your you put in your stuff in the the gray you know the gray bucket to go through security. The security, this this place where this one place where you're going to give up your your privacy for the sake of security. And even there, in the bottom of the bucket, there's an advertisement for something or other, right? That, that space, which is, you know, you've, you've given up this this uh, your attention for this moment. It's been used for economic purposes. And he's not saying it's some big conspiracy, but he's just saying we should note this. And this is important for us in the church because uh, where you direct your attention, whether you give your attention away or... Whether you let it be taken from you um, matters right How are we to love what 's the, the greatest commandment? Love the lord your God with yeah, give him all your attention that 's what devotion means right is to to get, to pay full attention to um, and so the, it, it's a really so I find the book, the book to be really applicable, and then this paragraph came up, and I th- wished that I had seen it before last week's class. So, page four, you can see that post-it note, which is, was yellow, now is white. We have developed methods for tuning out commercial messages, for example, by inserting earbuds or burying our faces in devices. This is what you do if you're riding on public transportation and you don't want to give away your attention. Bus riders in Seoul, South Korea, find themselves at a new frontier. They have advertising squirted into their noses. A smell resembling that of Dunkin' Donuts coffee is released into the ventilation system as a Dunkin' Donuts advertisement plays over the bus's sound system shortly before the bus stops outside a Dunkin' Donuts store. (laughs) An announcer points out the fact, in case it has somehow been missed, this kind of advertising is especially aggressive and indiscriminate. It is also exquisitely well-targeted to morning commuters who are primed to want coffee at the time they are exposed to the advertising, and there it is, right next to the bus stop, the advertising agency responsible was rewarded by its, awarded by its peers, rewarded by its peers with a bronze lion award for best use of ambient media. Now, when I, so, so what's your first reaction to the to the notion of spraying the smell of Dunkin' Donuts in a in a bus? What? I'm offended. I, I feel like I've been assaulted. Yeah, you feel like you've been assaulted. Now, and, and okay, all right. So, like, I mean, it, it's the same sort of thing that I feel offended when I walk in. When I walk into a mall, generally, and then walk past, like, like some well it's perfume or something yeah. like that, right? Or one of these uh, a department store that's just spraying stuff. I don't know what it, what it is, but um, so you're—I—I I, I think that that visceral reaction is really interesting. You're offended. Now, are you similar? Yeah, Krista, go ahead.
1: I'm invited.
0: You're invited. Oh, you, oh, no, that's good. So let's think this the other way. So. I'm offended. You're, you're offended, and I'm offended because they're manipulating me. It's not actually Dunkin' Donuts that you're smelling. You're invited if, suppose, you walk by a bakery and the doors are open and you smell a bakery there, right? Where, they're ju- where the product is speaking for itself, right? Um, it's your, and it's your choice to walk by the bakery. You don't, you're not having it squirted in your nose, right? Right? Beth, did you have something? You're
1: the smell and walking to somebody's house.
0: Yeah, right. But
1: you know, because we know there's something
0: good for you. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Rachel. I am begrudgingly impressed
1: because
0: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It it is brilliant, yeah. right. And somebody's
1: making a lot of coffee out of like a oh. coffee drinker and you smell it, you want
0: it. To That's right. And and it's what is surprising is that with how visual and audio media have been so capitalized upon for advertising that this is just just such a recent thing. When it is so so powerful, right? Nothing wants me makes me want a cup of coffee more. Like seeing Maxwell House good to the last drop. Yeah, it makes me want a cup of coffee, but not like if the pot's already been brewed and I can smell it, right? It's really it's you're right. It's brilliant. Um, okay, so now now connect this to the church and our attention, our devotion to God. What do you think? What, what can we learn about ourselves? Um, and what can we learn about the church and God, the way God interacts with us from, from this and our reaction? Carol. Um, this is kind of a negative. Okay. And that would be from this example of the Delta donors and the feeling of being assaulted. Mm-hmm.
1: Whatever it is that we in the church He'll be aware of the negative.
0: That's right. So, so this is so this is really uh, this is really important, um, and it's so you remember a skunk sprayed last week, yeah. last weekend, right? Which was an assault on our senses, um, and there. Are, but there are also lots of lots of different kinds of smells that could happen in a church. Um, which are not pleasant smells, right? And, and there's sort of two ways to think about, there, there, there are two ways to approach the, the sense of smell in church as it pertains to God, right? You can either be agnostic about it, indifferent. You can say, it doesn't matter. So if a skunk sprays outside, well, that's what we're going to smell this morning. Or if uh, the pre- predominant perfume in the room is something delightful, we're just going to enjoy that this morning. Or if... Um, you know, they're cooking a, a lunch up in the kitchen. We're going to smell that wafting down, and that's going to be great. You, so you can be agnostic about it. You can be ambivalent about it and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Or you can say, which is what we do here at St. John, church uh, is is in, involving all of your senses. It requires all of your attention. You're devoted entirely to God. And this is why at baptism... Um, you get anointing oil put on your forehead um, and my thumb smells like it the rest of the day. And so I'm thinking about baptism all day long and then you get that, you get that same anointing when you are sick or when you're on your deathbed and you smell like baptism. You, you, it's, like, it's like if you smell coffee, you, you want to drink coffee. If you smell anointing oil, you remember your baptism. It's how it goes. The same thing with incense. Um, you, you all recognize this place instantly when you walk in. You're not as you're not as sensitive to the incense as you once were. Perhaps you become used to smells over time, but you will notice the difference if there was no incense burned, as opposed to if there if there were incense burned. And the point is, um, it matters what it what it smells like matters just as much as it matters like what the acoustics are, right? And uh, what color the walls are and what color the vestments are, those things all matter. Um, what what the pews feel like, what the pews feel like matters in the same way, because this is a place where you're devoting your attention to something that requires your whole attention. All right? Does that make sense? Okay. Barb. Um,
1: one of the smells that I always remember is the
0: Easter lilies on Yeah, absolutely. Sure. It just... It just Brings the vision of Christ rising, and yeah. it's just
1: that really is
0: Easter. That's right, and it's 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 so deliberate too, right? I mean, it, and that's such a gift. That is such a gift from, uh, from from God's creation, right? That that Easter lilies are blooming at the appropriate time. I mean, that's it's a marvelous thing. Yeah. Okay. I kind of just wanted to defend the church for a second. Yeah. You walk into Dunkin' Donuts and you smell the coffee and that's desirable. Right.
1: But to be you know, to have like throw incense on a bus and people are like, What are you doing? You walk into church and you're involved by the things that you wish to come for. That's right. Unless you're an outsider, you don't know what to expect.
0: Right. So coming to church is
1: I don't want the two to be confused, like we're assaulting people with...
0: No, you're right. So so coming so coming to church is like Walking into a bakery, right, where you know you know what you're expecting, you you know it's going to smell a certain way, and if if you find yourself surprised that it smells like bread, well, that's probably that's probably on you, right? Um, it, but it's and it, but it's it's not like we send the vicar during the week to up and down buses with a sensor. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't. <laughs> um, but we do go we do go into the hospital with uh, with anointing oil because when you can't come to church, church comes to you. And uh, the, and, and it's not in that case it's not an assault, it's uh, it's an assertion of the the the, uh, the the universality, the presence of the church even in the sickbed. Yeah. And when the the fragrances of the church are never the, the motive is never manipulation. Right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we're not... Exactly. So, and, and you can... I mean, even with Dunkin' Donuts, it's... it's so, I, you might draw a line like, suppose whether suppose it's a, a synthetic smell. It's not actually coffee. That, but if they're actually spritzing coffee into the bus, that'd be less manipulative than if they had some potion that smelled like coffee, and so they're spritzing it in the bus. But even, even that is more manipulative than... Opening the doors of the cafe, and out comes the smell of the coffee. Right. So what is? So again, it's we're not. This not. It's not a manipulation of emotions, but God. God invites us, to be attentive. And uh, with all with all of our senses, and that's one. of... I mean, so so take or leave. Whatever you think about the book, um, this is one of the really interesting, important things for us to glean from it. Right. Is that. Uh, the, the Bible is, uh, is chock full of invitations for us to be enveloped, right, by uh, our devotion to God, by God's presence and God's gifts, um, and, not, and not to leave some part of us behind. Not, not even to leave, so not to leave our sense of smell behind, not to leave our clothing behind, but to know that all of us matters. Rachel, were you going to say something? Um, I was just gonna... I found it interesting that we're, like, um, so offended by the
1: smell of something like that and the manipulation of that, but um, I think maybe it's just because we're not used to it because I also find it similarly offensive to walk into a mall and walk past the Victoria's Secret and see all of, like, the pictures that
0: they have. Yeah, sure. Right. But we're more used to that, so it's maybe, I don't know,
1: not that it's not offensive, but we're just used to it, whereas something like this,
0: we're not used to it. We we're desensitized to it, yeah. right? So, that, so, uh, so uh, this is all. Um, I think this is just this book is a really helpful, and especially this paragraph, a really helpful thing, just for understanding um, that you're that you can either be passive or active with y- your attention. Right? You can let your attention be taken, or you can be deliberate about what you give your attention to, and that's what that's what devotion consists of: attending to thing the, the things that matter. Okay, Krista.
1: You know, um, concerning the interest of um, in the church. You know, I I, I always said <laughs> um, Protestants are sometimes allergic. Yeah. I never never really I can say never because Gendo, um I was a Catholic and her uh she never heard that some Catholics said, Oh,
0: I'm allergic Well so and this is the, an interesting thing because um, I have allergies, right? people have allergies. Now um, just like you might find it really uncomfortable to sit on a hard wooden pew um and and maybe there are ways you can accommodate yourself sitting on a hard wooden pew, it might be that incense is challenging for a person, but the reason why th- this is really important for us to understand as a as a body as a as a group as a people is that um, we we assist. We we find ways to help. We find ways to to accommodate, but we don't give up the things that identify us, right? So um, we don't. We're we're. What's the what's the the language? Um, we're not accommodationists. We are. Um, what so we're not going we're not going to change who we are. If we were in the habit of changing who we are and what we do at at the the sensibility or sensitivity of any given individual then all of a sudden the church has no has no uh, bearing anymore right if instead we start with what god says and we say okay we do these we do these things because god says that they're good and look just like with uh um alcohol in the wine right we make accommodations uh, we 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 make we make we we try and be helpful right so we have non-alcoholic wine right Alcohol, well, alcohol-removed wine. So there's a teeny bit of alcohol in there. Alcohol-removed wine. Um, just like if you say, I'm, I really struggle with the incense, we say, sit on the northeast side of the sanctuary where the incense doesn't blow, right? Um, you'll still smell it, but it's not going to be like sitting where you sit, Nancy, and you get it right in your face, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and, and this is important because um, we... So the the church operates differently than the world. It operates differently than um than than uh, than this country. Um we take our directives from from top down. And uh God orders our our worship in a certain way. He doesn't give us commands about worship, but he tells us what's good for us. And he tells us that things that um that every bit of us matters. Um and so we got to take that seriously, right? This was, it's, again, it's the, same reason why, it's the same reason why I don't come to church and stand, get up in the pulpit wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Because it matters, right? It matters what, what I'm wearing and what I look like and what, you, what of me you see. Okay? All right. So, so that's food for thought. Think about that. Um, think about how you, how you give your attention away um, and how you direct your attention. Okay, now on to the next thing. What did you think about this week's chapter? A lot about bread. A lot about bread. So the chapter was on bread and raise, just raise, no shame. Raise your hand if you did not read the whole thing. Okay, okay. I was also raising my hand. No, I'm. I'm just kidding. I read the whole thing, but I
1: like the vine stuff
0: the best. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's go. Let's go like this. Let's. We're just going to take it bit by bit, whatever comes to mind, and then I'm going to I'm going to take you to the Bible as we go along. So go ahead, Marilyn. What What do you What did you like best?
1: Well, it's like the part where they compared it with the vine and the pruning, and
0: uh, you
1: know, uh, I just thought that that part was better than the bread.
0: Yeah. So now, and this is so this is. Uh, th- uh, Bear this in mind, she's mixing, she's mixing two different things here. So Jesus says, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? He's not talking about the Eucharist. He's not talking about the vine, a vine which produces grapes, which then are the cup that's, that we bless. It's a different. It's a. It, it's a different. I am statement. It's different than when he says, "I am the bread of life," which is in John chapter six, where he says, "Also, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has life." Right. So she's she's kind of mixing things up a little bit here. But the the vine imagery. When Jesus says, "I'm the vine," is really is really important.
1: And the time it's to Isaiah, I guess I've been. Yeah. Recognize that before,
0: I didn't know that. Yeah, Isaiah five. Um, all about a, a fruitful vineyard. A so,
1: vineyard
0: fruitful Lord. Quoted the yeah, right, right. So, I mean, and this is one of the prevailing images in Isaiah. The Lord has planted a vineyard. He's planted a vineyard that he hopes will bear fruit. We see this image of bearing fruit all throughout the New Testament. And it's been, uh, it's been unfruitful. And so, what is he going to do with it? What's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to destroy it. He's, um, he's going to um, raise it and start anew. Um, he's going to preserve what's fruitful and he's going to uh, plant a new vineyard, right? And, and my, favorite, my favorite image of this, uh, of the, the fruits of that vineyard come in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, right? And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever because finally the vine has been fruitful. Now, this is where it's so important that Jesus is the vine, right? Jesus is the vine, the fruitful vine, the vine that uh, uh, makes up for the fact that uh, the, the vineyard planted. Um, didn't bear any fruit. Okay, um, does that make sense? All right, Holly, you had something. Uh,
1: just a comment
0: on the reading. Okay, let's let's do it. I don't care for the chapter. I thought it was okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one thing I did really like, on 102 and 103, you three about, you
1: talked about. you wish know, it, you know, this like, of bread and big thing, wine and then she realized that maybe maybe we just need to retool our understanding of what is truly really necessary for life and that we only you know God gives us exactly what we need and maybe it's less
0: than what we need. right right yeah so so there are the, it, it, there are times when when practice shifts to um, confront prevailing ideas and culture so we're, we live in a, a modern time where it's it is totally flies in the face of everything that everybody can understand the notion that a tiny bit of bread and a tiny sip of wine is in fact the entire body and blood of christ and the, the abundance of god's gifts for you right now there may be there are certainly at other times in history where people where people didn't didn't struggle with that, and the point didn't need to be made quite so clearly. But that's one of the reasons why we why we make the point. Um, another reason is uh, because another reason we use communion wafers. I don't know if you know this, and not and not a loaf of bread that we tear. Is what happens if you what happens if you tear off chunks of bread? You get crumbs, right? And so we're saying we're saying we you know people don't take seriously the fact that it's Jesus' body, and we want you to know that. Uh, it's Jesus' body. So you'll see us clean out the saborium and put it into the chalice, and clean off the patent and, and put the crumbs in the chalice. Um, when I'm, this occasionally will happen that I'll give somebody a host, and then I'll have a crumb on my finger, and then I'm blessing a kid, and the kid gets the crumb on their forehead, and I think, well, that's probably okay. But I usually, I usually try and uh, brush my fingers off in the in the saborium beforehand because because it's Jesus' body, right? It matters.
1: But she mentioned it,
0: too, that we are, we are living from the crumbs of Jesus. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the confession of the Syrophoenician woman, um, in which, I can't remember which gospel, Luke maybe, um, even the crumbs that fall from the table, right? Uh, Jesus puts this woman to the test. She says um, uh, it's, about, it's about healing her child, right? Uh, it's not fit for the food to be given to the dogs. But even the dogs, she says, eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And and that will be good enough for me. Just like the woman who grabs just the corner of Jesus' garment, right? That is good enough for me because in that little bit uh, is everything. Is everything. Um, Abundance is, so this is the the, the really valuable point. And she she nails it. Um, uh, God's abundance is not in, in the seeing, but in the believing. Right? It's, not in this, it's not in the seeing, but in the believing. Um, and it's because he says that he's given us so much. Okay. What else? Anything else stand out to you in the chapter? Yeah, Krista. I only uh, asking,
1: you know, <coughs> the free church is because uh, concerning uh, the traces when you got, uh, you know, I grew up naturally when, uh, when you go to a church, you dress nicely. Yeah, right. And then it came a time where they said, uh, oh, I don't know how it came about, accept um, uh, you, how you are. Right, right. You are not the, the nightly dress or something. Right. And uh, our son, they are in a free church, no? and a uh, tiny church, what they just created. They come, <laughs> yeah. Not really uh, dressed nicely for. Um, and I always say, you know, when you would go um, to the president, um, you would have uh, in a nicely garment, you know. So, uh, what what do you think in in uh, in um, this? Uh, you should come as you are.
0: So you should come as you are. And. Th- the most important thing, so it's coming up on Reformation Day, okay, the most important thing, this is one of the tenets of the, Re- the Reformation, is that we are not legalists. We're not, we don't make laws about things. We have been freed from the law. The law no longer has dominion over us. The law doesn't tell us that you, uh, that you have to be cleansed before you come to church. Now, so we have to protect ourselves first from being legalists, which is why often we'll say things like, "No, of course you don't of course you don't you shouldn't worry about what you look like when you come to church. I tell people to come to church in their pajamas all the time. Just be, if that's what's going to get you to church, come in your p j s It doesn't matter because for you, coming to church is is the key, right and Jesus doesn't care what you wear now, if you come to church and you say um, I'm going to wear my shoddy clothing because I don't care about church. Then we have a different conversation, right? Then we say, then we say, you know, what does that mean about how 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 you're understanding? What does that mean about your affections and your attention, right? Um, so that this is, this is a, again a, a question that fits in line with a this, with a the discussion about, um, you know. A meal versus uh, wafers and and a, and a chalice. Um, we don't ma- we don't make laws. But we don't have policies. The church doesn't have policies. We have Jesus. That's what we have, and uh, that means that a lot of things are, uh, are, are 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 very pastoral decisions. Pastoral care. It's a matter of pastoral care. Um, how you dress is one of them. So. Come in your PJs if you want, Uh, but (laughs) you probably won't, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, anything else? Yes? I I
1: was just looking at this, she talks a little bit about this food work and food play and how God, he identifies, he knows exhaustion and finitude because um, he was incarnate, you know, but I just don't see him <laughs> giving spaghettios to the saints, you know, because <laughs> <That's laughs> even Jesus, when he was here, you know, whenever he was providing food, there was just always an abundance.
0: Yeah. You know? What do you have against spaghettios? Maybe. <laughs> 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 no, I think, I think so, where does she make that point? Uh, do you 109, 108? Um, it's, it's interesting. Let's talk, let's talk about this just for a second. Standing in my own kitchen, this is the bottom of page 108, so she's wondering about God's experience providing food for us, which is an interesting thing to think about. Does God, um, when God provided manna for the, so think about, think about the story, manna and quail, right? The people were grumbling because they didn't have anything to eat, and so God said, okay, I'll give you something to eat. Here's a foot of quail on the, on the ground in the morning, um, and here 's some manna, and if you don 't keep the manna if you don 't eat it all it 's going to turn rotten and maggoty, right um, because they didn 't appreciate what he had cooked for them right so in some, so God is like us all right in that sense, or we are like God in that sense um, so what is it? God is it? Now, now now God has prepared this this feast, um, which is perfect which uh, which we can perfectly receive because it 's because of the sacrifice of christ right so We couldn't receive God's. We couldn't participate in the marriage feast of the Lamb. We couldn't eat God's meal. We couldn't eat, have table fellowship with God apart from Christ. But now Christ has come. Christ has died for us. We are in Christ. Now we are fit for the banquet. We're wearing the the garments, the wedding clothing. And so, what is God's experience of preparing that meal for us? That's a that's a great question. I think it's a really it's an interesting thing to consider. So, she says, standing in my own kitchen, which which is filled with books by Alice Waters and Laurie Colwin which is a wash with quinoa, I realize that I am at some risk of turning the God who provides food into a foodie for whom cooking the right food at the right time of year has become both a pleasure and a mark of status. Surely our image of God as a provider of food might also include my mother, home from a long day at work and utterly without the energy to cook, microwaving a bag of popcorn for herself and opening a can of Chef Boyardee for me. Wait, one might object. With all due respect to your mother, how can that picture have anything to do with God, with the God who offers us Flavors and nourish, flavor and nourishment. This is your objection, Tina, right? The God who created all those vegetables in Eden, the God who wants to provide us for us abundantly. My answer to that objection is this: God became incarnate, and God knew exhaustion and finitude, and God has a preference for those with no margins in their lives. And out of solidarity, God probably sometimes hands around a can of spaghettios to the saints. So, um, so the point that she's trying to make is that uh you you provide for uh yourselves and your families even when it is just arduous work right even when even when it 's unappreciated and even when it it doesn't taste great right um, you do that i'm sure it always tastes great but you do that you do that um, and it's uh, there there's this this Pride in it, um, and this completion of the work, and that 's the same thing that God is doing, so i don't think, i don 't think she means that literally God hands her on spaghettios if she does mean that she 's probably wrong, um, but what she does mean is that God does uh, understands what it is to rest and what it is to um, to uh, uh, be, be, have your have your load taken off lost, that's right. 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 Like a right now. now, so of course, again, in Christ, what's different? And this is this is where I wish that all of her I wish that all of her discussions turned on this, right? That in Christ, um, Christ who takes how many loaves and how many fishes and turns them into a feast, right? Christ who does that doesn't need to bother with spaghettios because um, he's got a cup that's overflowing, right? And a and a flour jar that's never empty and an oil. An oil jar that that's running over, um, so it's just not so. So in the church, it's um, th- this is one of the great things about preaching in the church, um, and this is it's often undervalued, is that because we're because we're here because of Christ because of the abundance that sits on the altar, we get to we get to say to you things that are just just outrageous. Um, that seemed to be patently untrue, which is that you have in this everything you need. This is the best meal you've ever had. It's, it's way better than a can of SpaghettiOs. It's the best meal you've ever had. Um, it's everything you need. And, you, and it's perfect. It's perfect. You're at the feast right now. You're sitting at the table with Jesus. He's given you everything he's got. Uh, he's, uh, he's slaughtered the fattened calf. Um, and, and you're experiencing it right now. That it, it, Unqualified. It's true. Every time you come to church, every time you come to the altar, um, in this world in which that, that seems utterly impossible, in which food is scarce, right? In which SpaghettiOs are sometimes all that you have, right? Here we get to say, there's no lack. Nothing's missing. It's all there. Um, and and i so that's so I think that that's if I was going to diagnose what one of the things that she uh one of her shortcomings is that she doesn't take us there she's she's much more interested in meeting people at a place of their their sort of human experiences and less at a place of the sacramental experience that we have in Christ, right so yeah, it's true. That uh, it's an interesting experiment to imagine Jesus as a loaf of zucchini bread. That's true. It's interesting, but it misses the point about what the Eucharist is, right? It's not how Jesus tastes. It's not how. It's not whether or not he has nuts in, you know, and chocolate chips. It's uh, it's that he fills you, and that it's a, a feast um, of wine well-aged, of, of of marrow, well-refined, right? Um, it's not that it delights this or that sen- sensibility of yours, not that it reminds you of this or that thing, but that it gives you God, it gives you salvation. Right, right. This is again so I would I want to um page 98 This is an important thing. She makes this she makes this comment about this how she had her, heard this rabbinic commentary growing up thinking that manna tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like, right? Um And then she concludes on the top of page 98 Jesus does not just taste like honeyed wafers. Jesus tastes like whatever, tastes like morning glory muffins or chocolate tea bread, whatever you desire. That's not true. It's not true. What you desire is Jesus. You desire Jesus. Um, You don't desire him because he tastes like your favorite bread. You desire him because he feeds you. that, and, and, and it's just completely backwards. What she says is completely backwards there. Um, it's not, I mean, yeah. Go ahead, Nancy. I, mean, I found it very irritating. But um, I think you
1: take the network. Yeah,
0: um, it was a long chapter, wasn't it? Okay. <laughs>
1: And those days, bread really was the staff of life. It wasn't that it had a in it or anything else. Right. What was you alive. Right. And that's why in a translation, you go, uh, like, in Mexico, for some parts of Mexico where they had to translate it, that Jesus is the tortilla of life. Right. Yeah, because for <laughs> them, bread is something special. You know, that would be the zucchini bread with the nuts and the chocolate chips and all that. And that is what, what was meant. It was meant that this is what keeps you alive.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so... so. Um, Yeah, you're right. Um, Let's put her aside for a second. Anything else about what we read? Let's just... uh, Yeah, Krista. I thought it
1: was interesting that manna was every day a different taste. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, on on my hand, I thought, but then you get not bored.
0: Well, that's... Although that's that's not what the Bible says, right? It tastes... (laughs) <laughs> it tastes like something in particular, and and in fact, part of the lesson was that they got bored with the manna, right yeah. They got bored with the manna okay um, we 're at let 's let 's give her a little bit of a rest um, <laughs> so w- again, let me just say whatever you think of uh, w- whether you were irritated or delighted or interested or bored or didn 't read it at all um, it 's a really helpful thing for us to. Um, have these conversations because um, we live in a, our church we live in uh, Christianity um, is at odds with the way culture thinks about things right so uh, culture is concerned with what you desire church is saying let us let us tell you what you ought to desire and let us let us make you desire those things that's what God's going to do um, uh, the world is all about uh, finding abundance in quantity. And the church is all about finding abundance in Christ. Right? Go ahead, Carol. This reminds me of the prayer for this week. Is now in uh, yeah, always gives us more than we desire or deserve. Uh, but always gives more than we even know. That's right. We desire. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and here's the other thing too. Um, she ha- she sp- she spends all this time talking about memories being evoked, and memories are really important, right? Memory is important in the Bible. We can talk about faith. We can describe faith in terms of memory, remembering what God has done for you. This is a refrain. When you come out of the land of Egypt and you you celebrate the Passover, and your kids ask you why are we doing this, you will tell them the story so that they remember. I 'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the land of slavery, right? do this in remembrance of me, right? but it's a different kind of remembering. This is really important. it's a different kind of remembering than the kind of remembering that you do, say when your nose is uh, when your nose pays attention to some zucchini bread, right? So you remember something, you remember something in your past, you remember a history, you remember an event um, or a situation or a setting. And that's it. It's a feeling. It evokes a feeling. The kind of remembering. The kind of memories. That the sacraments. That, that, uh, that Christ produces. Are effective memories. They don't just sit there. They change you. And they do something to you. And they, and they fill you with faith. Um, so that when, so that when you, I mean, when you remember, when you do this in remembrance of me, it's not, it's not like we're reenacting the Last Supper, but Jesus is actually there. You're not, you're not just remembering that he did this one time back then, but you're, you're at, you're at the, you're at the table with Jesus now, and he's giving you his body and his blood. That's what he means when he says, "Do this in remembrance of me." It means it's actually happening. Um, it's not just. Uh, something that, that's, historic, uh, historic um, that's a historic artifact. That's, again, a key difference. Um, if, you, if you sort of sentimentalize... Sentiment, sentimentalize? Is that a word? Okay. Thank you. If you, you can, it's so easy to do, to sentimentalize Christianity and to talk about feelings. Um, feelings are important, but what's more important is what happens when your feelings go haywire. And when your sentiments go haywire. And what is underneath that is is the memory that Christ has left you. Um, The memory of what he's done for you. So you say, uh, it sure feels like you're giving me the short end of the stick, but you did die on the cross for me, and you give yourself to me every Sunday, and um, give me your Holy Spirit so that I believe that you're going to come through on your promises. Right, even though I feel like it's not going to happen, um, sentiments and feelings—they're uh, they're an important part of you, but they're not—they're not—they're the, not the basis for understanding what Jesus is doing in the church. Okay, you know that though, right? Um, look, take a look at this uh, Eucharistic theory of culture. Uh, this is by Peter Lighthart. He's one of my favorite guys. Um, and he he often has these short little articles on the first things website first things is a a um a publication, a journal um, and he has a blog and I, I always find the stuff that he writes really interesting and I thought you might and you might enjoy this sort of as a as a foil to what Lauren Winner said. There are some things that are in common um, uh, but he he ties things together really nicely. so listen to what he says. let me just read it two sides: the lord's Supper models a proper meal, but for that very reason, it models a properly ordered community, the right order of human society. How we eat together, with whom we eat, tells us what kind of community we are. It also presents a model of work, creativity, culture, the whole realm of human making. In the Eucharist, we don't eat grain, but bread. We don't drink water or eat grapes from the vine, we drink wine. Both bread and wine are cultural products, the result of human labor. We need to plant and harvest grain, transform grain into flour, and mix flour with other ingredients, bake it to make bread. Winemaking is a complicated process that takes enormous skill and knowledge. In making bread and wine, we are mimicking the creativity of God, who takes hold of the creation, breaks it down, puts it back together in new ways, gives it a new name, pronounces it good. Bread and winemaking imitate the creative work of God. We do this all the time. We remake what comes to us in creation. We cannot help but do this. No human being exists in a purely natural environment. We transform it all the time. It's the way we are in the image of God, the creator. And what does the Lord's Supper show us about our making? Our making is ordered toward worship. This is, it's, here's the contrast. Ordered towards worship and not sentiment. right? Worship and not sentiment. Bread and wine stand in for all our cultural products, and we bring them into the presence of God. Protestants don't believe that Christ is re-sacrificed in the Lord's Supper, but we do believe in a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise and self-offering. And that isn't just ourselves, but the products of our hands, the things we manipulate and manufacture. These are fitting offerings to God, and God accepts even commands that we bring these cultural products to Him. Not only on the Lord's Day, but every day. We offer our works to God in worship, specifically with an act of thanksgiving. When we bring bread and wine, and by implication... Everything we make and do before the Lord, we do it with thanksgiving. This is remarkable. After all, we made the bread and wine, and yet we thank God for them. We thank him for the products of our hands because even the things we make, even our works, are his gifts to us. Paul says that thanksgiving is an act of consecration. Every created is good. Every created thing is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. When we give thanks for what we have made, we are consecrating the works of our hands to God. And having given thanks at the table, we are trained to live lives of continuous Eucharist, continual thanksgiving, giving thanks, as Paul says, for all things at all times. We bring what we have made to God, but he doesn't take it from us. We bring what we have to God, and he shares it with us. And so the things we make become means of communion with God. The Eucharist is the way the world ought to be. Raw creation cultivated to grain and grapes. Cultivated creation brought to its fulfillment by cooking. Cooked creation enjoyed in the presence of God. Cooked, created, enjoyed together by a community of worshipers. Cooked creation given in praise and received with thanksgiving. The final end of all things is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the Lord's Supper we anticipate that final feast. The feast that is the culmination of all creation. History is heading toward a wedding and an eternal wedding reception, and our lives are to be spent readying the world for the wedding feast, a wedding feast that we are already enjoying now. In the Eucharist, we bring creation to its fulfillment. We transform the creation into things useful and enjoyable for us, and we give thanks. And so the supper reveals us to ourselves. This is what we are created to do, to be priests and kings ruling the earth, transforming it from glory to glory, and joining it all in one great Eucharistic banquet. I just think that 's m- marvelous, yeah. isn 't it? Um, yeah, I could just read that again. Um, um, I, so i so 'd invite you to take that and, and read it, read, it, read it again for yourself there 's so much in there, um, and but what it does is maybe reframes the way we hear the things that Lauren winter says, so she 's talking about. Um, Creation and created works in a different way, um, sort of missing the end game, um, and we can we can salvage that, and we do that here by uh, by talking about the Eucharist, by remembering what these things are for. Um, I thought you'd also find it interesting this the second one the second one by Peter Lighthart, who talks about the Dionysian Jesus. Um, and you remember when um, Lauren Winter says talks about the alcohol and wine, and how Jesus is. Uh, excessive and dangerous, which at first struck me as really odd. Right? I didn't. I, she was talking about a good kind of drunkenness, um, and the way she said it didn't didn't ring well with me. Um, but then I remembered First Corinthians, you know, First Corinthians eleven, right? Um, how it how it can kill you, right? It can kill you, and um, or and make you sick if you if you're if you eat and don't believe, if you don't discern the body and blood. Um, it can kill you and make you sick. It's dangerous, right? Not in the sense that like you're gonna you're gonna become blackout drunk, but that it is potent, right? That it does something to you. The Eucharist does something to you, and um, in that sense, the fact that it's wine isn't incidental. Um, and so here, Peter Lighthart draws a connection to um, myths of Dionysus, who was the the god of excessive feasting, right? And he says, he says, Jesus is the true Dionysus, the one whose excessive feasting um, is for our good. And he says, the wine. This is the last paragraph on the first page. The wine is not safe. It is the wrath wine of the holy God. Right? I'll pour pour out the cup, a cup of wrath. God says, the transcendent God, the God who escapes every effort to control or co- corral him. So if you drink this, if you drink his. This wine, drink his body, or eat its body and drink his blood and think that you're going to control the corral him, it's going to kill you because you can't come at God that way. You can't. Um, you, you, you receive him as he's given, given himself to you. The wine of Jesus, the wine foaming and strong in his cup, wine that he pours out to make his enemies stagger and fall. The wine of Jesus, too, can drive people mad. For some who come to this table are sick and some are falling asleep. That's 1 Corinthians. Then he says, this wine is not safe. But it is a cup of blessing, which is a, which is a fantastic way to think about the Eucharist, right? If you um, uh, think that if you think that it doesn't matter, if you find yourself becoming acquiescent or just sort of like quiescent, just sort of ambivalent about it, remember that. Remember what Jesus, remember what Paul says. Um, do you not know that uh, it's that the bread that we break is the, the body of Christ. That, uh, the cup that we share is, is the, the cup of fellowship with Christ. Do you not know? This wine is not safe, but it is a cup of blessing. That's how you should that's how you should think about it. Okay?
1: And it has blood what we are thinking.
0: Right. And believe in it. Right. Um, yes. Right. Right. <laughs> it's not it's not mere wine, but Christ's blood. Rachel, are you raising your hand? Okay. All right. Any questions? Have I left you? I, is, are you okay? I feel like I got a little bit more impassioned than I normally do, and I'm sorry if that... Okay. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done